You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. If you have ever said or done something and had it mischaracterized, misreported, misrepresented, or had false, insidious motives attached to it and had somebody question your character, your integrity, your honesty, then you know what Paul went through in that temple that day when they drug him outside and leveled against him those false accusations. That's in Acts chapter 21. You're going to need to turn there in your Bibles for our text this morning. One of the difficult things about a false accusation is that it's, I should say one of the things about a false accusation, it's very difficult to defend yourself against them. If I say to you, you're an adulterer, you say, I am not. Well, prove it. How do you prove that? How can you prove that you've been faithful? How can you prove that you're not what I say you are? You can't. Now you say, Jim, but listen, you're innocent until proven guilty, right? Is that right? Are you innocent until proven guilty? Theoretically, that's how we would like to see it work in our court system, but is that really how it works? Are you innocent until proven guilty in the newspaper? Are you innocent until proven guilty on the TV screen? The very fact that the accusation is raised against you makes everybody look askance at you. And instantly somebody says, well, there must be something wrong with him, or nobody would even raise the accusation against him. We would like it, theoretically, to work in a courtroom that you'd be innocent until proven guilty, but that is not how it works in the court of public opinion. That is not how it works in the minds of people who hear the accusations. That is not how it works in real life. You know that, and I know that. You're guilty until you're proven innocent. That's just the nature of false accusations. So when they grabbed a hold of Paul in the temple and they said, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people, against the law, against the temple, and he has even defiled this holy place by bringing a Greek into the temple. Remember those four accusations? When they raised those against the Apostle Paul, the sentiment in Jerusalem was already that he was guilty of that. Because the elders told Paul when he showed up, The people have been told concerning you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, to not circumcise their children, and to not walk according to the customs. So everybody already believed that these things were true of Paul. And then they drug him, they seized him, and they drug him outside the temple, and they shut the temple doors. And they would say to Paul, you have preached against our people. And Paul could say all day long, I have not. Well, prove it. Now friends, how do you prove that you haven't said something you haven't said? How do you prove that? You have preached against the law. I have not. Well, prove it. Prove you've never said anything against the law. You've preached against the temple. I have not. Prove it. You see how difficult that is? You see how difficult, if not impossible, it is to prove that you have never done something that you have never done. What do you offer as proof? You kind of have to sit there and take the heat from the false accusations. Well, they drugged Paul outside the temple. Their intent was to kill him. 
When we left off last week in Acts chapter 21, we saw that they had accused Paul of a capital crime. They have every legal justification for executing him right there on the spot, and that is indeed what they are proceeding to do. And so we pick up the story in Acts chapter 21. We're going to begin reading at verse 31. You see in verse 30 that they had shut the temple doors. Verse 31, while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another, and when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered them to be, ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following after them, shouting, Away with him! And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Then you're not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hands, and when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect. Now, friends, there's good news and bad news, kind of like the announcements this morning. There's good news and bad news about Paul's situation. Here's the bad news. His captors, his opponents, these Jews, have Paul right where they want him. For over 20 years, they've been looking for this opportunity. To have him on their turf, surrounded by a hostile mob, separated from the Romans, charged of a capital crime, they have been hunting and hating and hounding this guy and have sought on more than one occasion to kill him. Now they have it in their grasp. It is in their reach. They see it and they are intent on killing him. This is what they have been looking for. This is the opportunity they have been waiting to seize since his knees hit the dust on the Damascus Road. They knew back then they would have to kill him to shut him up. And now here it is. He's right there. His friends are few and far between, and even his friends, if they were willing to stand up for Paul, they're no match against this throng of people who have predisposed to hate him and to kill him. But here's the bad news for Paul's opponents, and that's the good news for Paul. The Lord wants Paul in Rome. Right? So no matter how bad it gets, the Lord wants Paul in Rome. And there is no purpose of his that can be thwarted. There is no plan of his that will not come to pass. Our God sits in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. And so Paul, with a calm, respectful confidence in that kind of a God, takes what comes to him. And friends, if you had to imagine a scene in which it seems that the entire world is spinning out of control and God is far removed and not in control of anything, you would picture this scene in the temple. This is as close to God out of control as you could imagine ever being in the midst of that kind of a hurricane of hatred, this sort of storm of resentment and antagonism toward Paul, and they are ready to just unleash all of their fury upon this individual. And you and I might stand in the middle of such circumstances and situations and say, where's God in all of this? Things are out of control. How could He allow me, His servant, to endure such a thing, to, to have to go through such a thing? Is it possible that it's all out of control? No. What we see in Acts 21, my friends, 
is that God is in control of every last detail of what is unfolding. Why? Because God wants Paul in Rome. And that's where Paul's going, whether the crowd likes that or not. Look at verse 31. It says they were intending to kill him. This is what they've been wanting to do for quite some time. And now they've charged him with a capital crime. They have, they have drug him outside of the temple and they have shut the temple doors. You know why they shut the temple doors? They don't want to kill the Apostle Paul inside the temple. That would defile the temple. Look, if you're going to murder somebody in cold blood, do it properly. If you're going to murder the messenger of God, then don't defile the temple of God with his blood. Shut the doors so that you won't defile the holy place with the blood of the Apostle. And then they proceeded to beat the tar out of Paul. I don't even think you and I can imagine this scene. They know that they have a limited amount of time. And I don't think they sat outside the gates of the temple and discussed what to do with Paul. Or asked Paul to give a defense. Or asked him whether these charges were true. When the Asian Jews grabbed a hold of Paul and they drug him outside the temple, friends, they intend for, intended from that moment on to do whatever they could to get him killed. And they started on that immediately. Because Luke says later on in the passage that when the commander shows up, they stop beating Paul. But they were intent on killing him, on executing him. Verse 31 says that the whole city was rushed together and they took hold of Paul. That's verse 30. Verse 31, a report came to the commander of the Roman cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. Now, I don't know about you, when I first read this passage, I thought to myself, I pictured the temple, and I pictured the doors to the temple being shut and the Apostle Paul right outside. And then I pictured somewhere on the other side of the city, the Roman barracks filled with soldiers who would have to hear a report of what was going on and then get from the other side of the city all the way to the temple doors, and then by the time they got there, the Apostle Paul would be hanging on for dear life. That's kind of how I pictured it in my mind. That's not what happened at all. Luke says that as they began to, as they shut the doors of the temple, immediately a report came to the commander of the Roman cohort. His name is Claudius Lysias, we find out later in the book of Acts. He's the commander in the city of Jerusalem. It did not take long for a report to come to him that the city of Jerusalem was in confusion. And you know why? Because right built into the wall of the of Jerusalem temple on this precipice was Fort Antonia. And it was built by Herod the Great, named after Mark Antony. And Fortress Antonio is where all of, this, all of the soldiers of the Roman cohort were stationed. And this was a massive barracks, a massive fortress. And it was on the northwest corner of the temple. It was 50 feet tall. And Josephus describes it. And Josephus says it had turrets, big lookout towers that towered up 100 feet. And from on top of those turrets, the Roman soldiers could look out and they could see most of the city of Jerusalem. And they could see all of the temple complex. And during festivals like Pentecost, which is where Paul, what Paul is in the temple celebrating, during festivals like Pentecost, those soldiers would stand up in those turrets and they would watch everything closely because if a riot was likely to break out, it was likely to break out in the temple. And so they had constant watch over the temple. And there were two flights of stairs that ran down from Fortress Antonia right into the court of the Gentiles where Paul was at. So you know how long it took for the Romans to find out that a riot had broken loose? That long. And that long is how long it took to get the word to the commander. And he would have said, the whole city is in confusion. Now, Lysias, Claudius Lysias, he was the commander of the Roman cohort, which means that everybody under, everybody in that fortress was under him. And Claudius Lysias is the top-ranking Roman official in all of Jerusalem. This is important because Paul has to be shipped off to see somebody over him in the food chain. Claudius Lysias is the top-ranking official in Jerusalem. Whenever Governor Felix was not in town, Lysias was in charge. And his job was to 
intervene in anything on Rome's behalf and to protect Rome's interests and to keep the peace. And so when Governor Felix is out of town, which he is because he lives in Caesarea, and once in a while he'd visit Jerusalem, but he's not there today, Lysias is in charge. And when the report comes to Lysias, immediately it says he took some centurions and some soldiers right down those steps that led from the fortress, right into the court of the Gentiles, and he was only a couple seconds run from Paul. Now, if you're a Jew and you want to kill Paul, and you know that the minute we start this, the Romans are going to intervene, and you want him dead before the Romans show up, and you know it's just a matter of a quick run from the fortress to where you're trying to kill Paul, you think you'd approach that task of killing Paul with some fervor? Well, you bet you would. You'd be doing everything in your power to get this guy unconscious and dead before the Romans showed up. That's what they did. Little detail here in the text. Luke says there were centurions. That's significant because that means there's more than one centurion. A centurion oversaw a hundred men. So when you dispatched a centurion, you dispatched a hundred men. So how many men did Claudius Lysias dispatch down into the court of the Gentiles to calm this crowd? At least 200 soldiers. At least. Because it was centurions plural. Now you think that's overkill? That sound like overkill to you? 200 soldiers? They would have been outnumbered 10 to 1 by the crowd inside the court of the Gentiles. Lysias didn't just go down in there with a bare minimum number of troops. Rome was known for its heavy-handedness. And if there was a riot about to break loose, immediately they would go down and they would stop it. And so he dispatches at least 200 soldiers, the centurions and the soldiers, and they rush down into the court of the Gentiles. And it says in the text that when they saw, when they saw the centurions, the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And then the commander came up and he took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. They arrested Paul. Now when Lysias shows up on the scene, I want you to imagine what he saw. The temple doors are shut and all of these people have gathered around. You know how mobs get? When I was a kid in, in I went to public school, one of the best events in a public school was the fights that broke out from time and again. And this is at least from my unsaved uh, fleshly perspective. We all wanted to see the fights. And so we would rush out into the hallway and friends, you couldn't get a teacher through that hallway to save your life when a fight was going on because the crowd was so thick, a mass of humanity, and, the, and you wanted to get the front row seats right up around where the fight was going on so that you could see it. And once a fight broke out, the teachers would try and get in, and it would take them, it would, they'd have to peel back people and, and climb over top of students and do anything they could to get to the scene of the fight to break it up. That's what it was like in the temple. But when the teacher, that is when Lysias showed up, they stopped beating Paul. I imagine the people who are throwing their fists kind of stepped back into the crowd and just sort of disappeared. You know why? They don't want to be arrested for assault. They don't want to be arrested for sparking a riot. If anybody's going to be arrested, it's going to be Paul. And when Lysias shows up, he sees the Apostle Paul, I would presume beaten and bloodied and disheveled, possibly lying in the dirt trying to catch his breath from the beating he's just received. And the crowd has gathered around and they've stopped beating him and there lies Paul. Now, what's Lysias going to assume? Lysias is going to assume the same thing that you and I would assume in that situation. And that is that whoever is responsible for this riot is lying at the bottom of that heap. When the teacher showed up at the fight in the hallway, he didn't assume that everybody watching it was responsible. He assumed that the two people fighting were responsible for it. So he grabs the Apostle Paul, seizes him, the word says, and Luke uses the same word for Lysias seizing Paul that he uses for the crowd seizing Paul. When the crowd seized Paul, it was not a polite here. Come with me. I'll hold your arm. No, they treated him like a common criminal. They laid hands on him and they drug him outside the temple. Luke says Lysias seized the Apostle Paul. That is, Lysias treated him just like a common criminal. Why? Because Lysias assumed that he was responsible for this in some way. 
And so Lysias has him arrested, bound with two chains. Now, why do you think that detail is included? Bind him with two chains. What does your mind immediately think of? Agabus, right? Taking the belt and binding the hands of the Apostle Paul. Luke includes this to remind us that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. We see the afflictions, now we see the chains that Agabus promised. This is a fulfillment of Agabus' prophecy. The Jews will bind the hands of the man who owns this belt, Agabus said. And now Luke includes that detail so that you and I are reminded, look, nothing that is going on here is outside of the purview of God's sovereignty. Nothing that is going on here is a surprise to the Lord. He saw it coming. He graciously prepared the Apostle Paul in advance for what he's about to face and for what he's facing. And so as this unfolds, the Apostle Paul would be thinking to himself, Agabus, this is what was prophesied. This is what the Lord promised me. Nothing here is out of control. Everything is going according to God's plan and what God has allowed. It's not gone wild. That's why that detail is included. He arrests the Apostle Paul. And then Lysias begins to ask. Look at the text. It says that he asked who he was and what he had done. Now, what Luke does not tell us in the text is who Lysias was asking. Did he ask the Apostle Paul, who are you and what have you done? Or did he go around to the people who are standing in the crowd and say, who is this man and what has he done? Whether he was asking Paul or he was asking the crowd, the result was the same. The minute he began to ask, who is this man and what has he done, the people erupt into all of these accusations. Some people are saying one thing, some people are saying something completely different. My guess is that most of the people standing around in that crowd had no idea what it was all about. Just like the theater in Ephesus. They didn't even know why they had come together, Luke says, of the gathering in Ephesus. Same thing here. Who is he and what has he done? And people start barking out these accusations of what's going on. Now I think what happened was Lysias asked the Apostle Paul what was going on. Who are you? He's the prisoner. Who are you and what have you done? And before the Apostle Paul has an opportunity to say even a single word, the crowd jumps in with their accusations, jumps in with their input. I have four kids. Occasionally, a report will come to me that my house is in confusion. And so I will rush down out of the upper floor, and I will rush down into where all of the confusion is, and I will find the individual who seems to be at the center of all of that confusion. And I will seize them and pull them aside and say to them, Who are you and what have you done? And before that child has a chance to respond, the other three, or at least the ones that can speak fluently, will jump in to get their side of the story heard first. And I always have to quiet the crowd and say, Stop! I didn't ask you. I asked him or her. Who are you and what have you done? And they will try and jump in again. This is what was happening with Lysias. He asked Paul, Who are you and what have you done? And he doesn't even have a chance to respond and in come the accusations and the crowd is in an uproar. Lysias decides he's being told one thing over here, another thing here, another thing here. He's not going to be able to get at the bottom of this, so he determines that he will take Paul into the barracks and he will interrogate him himself. Lysias will get to the bottom of this. So they begin to remove Paul to the barracks. Now, why didn't Lysias just turn Paul over to the Jews? He had been accused of a capital crime. They can execute him without thinking twice. Why didn't Lysias just say, Here you are. Turn them over to the temple police and let them execute them. You know why that didn't happen? The temple police were not in control. The mob was in control. 
They wanted Paul dead so much that they couldn't keep it together long enough to get their accusations straight and to let this be done appropriately. If they had evidence that he had brought a Greek into the temple or the accusation, they could have killed him. But the minute the accusation was raised, everything went chaos. And Lysias has to step in and stop the riot and stop the mob. That's his job. If they had just kept it together and said, he's guilty of defiling our temple, then Lysias would have said, that's a crime against your temple. It's in your jurisdiction. Do with him as you please. And Lysias would have turned him over to the temple police. But the people couldn't do that. Lysias didn't even know what all of this was about. And besides that, you're going to see later on, Lysias has a reason to believe that the Apostle Paul is a criminal that's wanted by Rome. So it's no longer in Jewish jurisdiction. He seizes Paul and he takes him to the barracks. Now, what do you think the crowd did when they saw that the Apostle Paul was being drug away to safety? Oh, their hope of his execution just evaporated before their eyes. And friends, like some mad, ravenous crowd, they cannot control themselves any longer. It is as if they forget that a Roman army is on the scene, Roman soldiers are on the scene, a Roman commander is on the scene, and they go hog wild with... That's not kosher for Jews. They go wild with the Apostle Paul in the temple. And they begin shouting at him, and look at the violence of the mob. By the time they get to the steps of the barracks, they have to pick the Apostle Paul up, and they have to carry him up above the mob because of the violence of the crowd, Luke says. And the crowd is just left to say this, away with him. Now what do they mean by that? Take him out of the temple. Is that what they mean? Look over at chapter 22, verse 22. This is after Paul's defense to them. They listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. What does the cry away with him mean? Kill him. This is not the first time that this Jewish crowd has, has chanted away with him. Luke chapter 23 says that they shouted, away with him and release to us Barabbas. John 19, away with him, away with him, crucify him. That's a cry for having the individual killed. If the crowd is not going to be allowed to kill the Apostle Paul, then the crowd wants the Romans to kill him. They're not asking him to take him out of the temple. They're saying, kill him, away with him. Now, Up to this point, the Apostle Paul, as far as we can tell, has not been allowed to speak. Nor has he spoken. He's been silent. Have you noticed that? During all of this, the accusations, the dragging outside, the beating, and all of that, the Apostle Paul, just like a lamb before it shears is silent, hasn't said a word. Just quiet. He hasn't, he hasn't met reviling with reviling. He hasn't met false accusations with false accusations. He hasn't tried to defend himself. He's just been rather meek and, and silent. In fact, in all of the confusion, as Lysias has been trying to discern what is at the bottom of all of this confusion, the Apostle Paul hasn't said a thing. And now they've got him up on the steps and they're, they're bringing him into the barracks. And the Apostle Paul says in verse 37, May I say something to you? This is the first time he said anything. I want you to notice something. I want you to notice the courtesy with which the Apostle Paul addresses this Roman official. Do you notice that? May I speak to you? May I say something to you? Ask permission to even open his mouth. May I say something to you? Why did the Apostle Paul do that? He says he's just sugarcoating it. He's just trying to get off. No, this is just who Paul was. If anybody had a right to be surly, it was the Apostle Paul. If anybody had a right to object, to scream, to shout, to yell, 
to, to claim unjust treatment, it was the Apostle Paul. He's been arrested by Romans without cause, without any valid charges, without anything. All based upon assumptions. And here his rights have been trampled. And as they're about to bring him into barracks to, to interrogate him, the Apostle very courteously, very generously says, Can I speak to you? May I say something to you? It shows the Apostle Paul's view of authority, friends. Because the Apostle Paul believed Lysias is God's authority, and to resist authority is to resist the ordinance of God. And so with respect and honor and dignity that is befitting for the office, the Apostle Paul, in a very kind, courteous, gentle, humble, and meek way, addresses this God-ordained authority, and he says, May I speak to you? And Lysias says, you know Greek? You know Greek? Took him off guard. You know Greek? Greek's the language of the culture. The educated, the sophisticated, the high class. Greek is not the language of a common criminal. You know Greek? Now verse 38 explains why it is that Lysias was surprised that he knew Greek. Look at that. Paul said, sorry, verse 38, Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up the revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. <laughs> what? Where did that come from? You know Greek? Well, then you're not that Egyptian guy that some time ago led the revolt and led a bunch of people out into the wilderness, 4,000 men of the assassins. If you're the Apostle Paul, you've got to be sitting there saying, where did that come from? Who said that? Why would you assume that? This is why Lysias arrested the Apostle Paul. He thought he was this Egyptian Jewish terrorist. That was what his assumption was. You were the man who a time ago left this, led this revolt and all these people went out in the wilderness. Now, maybe it is that when the crowd began to shout out their accusations and some said one thing and some said another, that somebody shouted this out. He's the Egyptian terrorist. And somebody else shouted, well, he's to follow the temple, he's a Jew. And Lysias finally just threw his hands up and said, I'll take him to the barracks to find out who this guy is. But when he hears the Apostle Paul speak Greek, he says, then you're not the Egyptian terrorist who some time ago led this revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. Now, this is not the only place in the world that this is mentioned. Josephus mentions this. And here's the story behind this. It's kind of an interesting, humorous one, actually. About three years prior to the Apostle Paul, there was this Jewish, this Egyptian Jew terrorist and he led a revolt. He gained a bunch of followers in the city of Jerusalem, and he led, Josephus says, 30,000 people out of the city up to the Mount of Olives. That's an exaggeration. Josephus is likely to exaggerate, and he did in this case, because Luke says there was only 4,000. So if i got to choose between Luke and Josephus, I'm going to go with the inspired author, Luke. So Josephus says he led all of these men out to the Mount of Olives, and this Egyptian Jew who, who claimed to be a Messiah figure of sorts he claimed that at his command, the walls of Jerusalem would fall down and this group of followers and himself would rush into the city of Jerusalem and they would overthrow the Roman cohort at the fortress Antonia and he would set himself up to rule Rome. They were going to overthrow the Roman rule in the city of Jerusalem and thus the province in which Jerusalem sat. That was the goal. Well, Governor Felix caught wind of this revolt that was going on and he dispatched the troops, maybe Lysias and all of his commanders because it was only three years earlier, he dispatched his troops out to the Mount of Olives and they killed a bunch of these Jews and captured a bunch of Jews. But the leader, this Egyptian Jew, and about 4,000 men, known as the assassins, went out into the wilderness and hadn't been seen from in some time. That's who Lysias thinks Paul is. That's why Lysias seized him. Now, the men that he led were called the assassins, the Sakari. It comes from a word that means dagger. 
these assassins were Jewish nationalists. They were very patriotic, very political, very uh, religious, um, nationalistic Jews. Anybody who, who in any way collaborated with Rome was seen as the enemy. Any fraternizing with Rome was seen as the enemy. So the assassins, they would, how they would work is they would go into big festivals like this, like on the day of Pentecost and Passover, and they would mingle with the crowd when humanity is sort of shoulder to shoulder and everybody's sort of inching their way through. You ever been in a theme park when it's really, really crowded and that's how you have to do or try and get through a, into a fight zone at school? That kind of mass of humanity. And they would get in the middle and they would target these Jewish leaders who were sympathetic to the Romans. And they had the daggers in their long flowing robes. And when they're in the mass of that humanity, they would pull the daggers out and they would assassinate the Jewish leader, put the dagger back, and then they would join the crowd of mourners and go undetected. So if you're anyway fraternizing with the Romans and you're a Jewish leader, you avoided places like the temple. Why? Because these guys would get up right next to you and before long you got a knife in your back and you're lying on the ground bleeding to death. That's how the assassins assassinated. They assassinated Jewish leaders who were sympathetic to Rome. Now, maybe Lysias assumes that the Jews had caught one of these assassins, or maybe the leader himself, in the temple, and that's why they were beating him. That's what the riot was about. Maybe he assumed that the Apostle Paul had assassinated somebody inside the temple, and now he seized him and he's brought him out. And when he hears Paul speak Greek, he's a bit shocked. Why is he shocked? Because Greek was the language of Egypt. You would expect an Egyptian Jew to be able to speak Greek since Greek was their official language. And listen, the Egyptian Jew would have been able to speak Greek and fluently. But the Egyptian Jew, this nationalistic Egyptian Jew, would have never spoken Greek. Why? Because Hebrew was the mother tongue. And to speak the language of the Romans was to fraternize with the enemy. And even though he was fluent in it, he would never have spoken the Greek language because he was such a nationalistic Jew. And he assumes, Lysias assumes, that the Apostle Paul is this Egyptian Jew. So when he hears him say, may I speak to you, and he speaks fluent Greek, he understands instantly, you're not the Egyptian terrorist who led these men out into the wilderness. You're not the one who led that revolt. Lysias has thought that he somehow arrived at the answer to all of this. He had an assumption. He had a prisoner. He thought he knew who it was. He thought he had apprehended somebody on Rome's most wanted list. He thought he had apprehended criminal number one for Rome. And now he hears him speak Greek and he realizes if he was the Egyptian Jew, he wouldn't speak Greek to me. So that's not who he is. Paul says, no, I'm a Jew of Tarsus. I'm a Jew, that is, I have every right to be inside the temple just like the other Jews. I'm of Tarsus, of Cilicia. I'm a citizen of no insignificant city. Now you notice that the Apostle Paul does not indicate that he's a Roman citizen, just that he's a citizen of Tarsus. His Roman citizenship is going to come up in a bit, but not right away. He just says, I'm a citizen of no insignificant city, and he's right. Tarsus was the capital of Cilicia. It was a university town, well-educated, high-cultured, highly educated, high-class people, wealthy, articulate, fluent. And when he hears the Apostle Paul speaking Greek fluently, he understands this guy's not a rabble-rouser. This guy's not your typical Jewish criminal. This guy's not some vagrant who hangs around and commits crimes worthy of death. He realizes that he's dealing with somebody who is higher class and educated. And the Apostle Paul says, that's right, I'm a citizen of Cilicia. That's no insignificant city. It's as if the Apostle Paul is saying to Lysias, I'm not the type of guy that would come into a crowd and create trouble like this. And then Paul says, may I speak to the people? Huh. Friends, you've got to love this about Paul. May I speak to the people? Can I address the crowd? You're Paul. 
You've got a crowd. Paul plus crowd equals opportunity to present the gospel. I'm Paul. I've got a crowd. I'm up on the stairs where everybody can see me. Everybody can hear me. Right? And not only that, but I've got an armed escort of about 200 well-armed bodyguards. Can I speak to the crowd? I love this about the Apostle Paul. He just looks for the opportunity in any situation. And here it is presented to him. Friends, you and I wouldn't have done this. You and I would be sitting on the steps of the barracks, licking our wounds, complaining about our rights being violated. We would be sitting there hoping that somebody caught this beating on tape because we want to get it on the 6 o'clock news and make a million dollars. And we're going to complain that our rights have been violated and we haven't been fairly treated and we've been arrested without a warrant. On It's a false arrest and we would be naming people in our minds to sue, but not the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, not looking for any any advantage for himself, sees an opportunity to present Christ. Here is the crowd. Here I am. If Lysias gives me an opportunity to preach Christ to these people, I will. Friends, I ask you, do you look for the same opportunity in situations like that? When the world is spinning out of control, do you look for an opportunity to glorify God in the midst of it? Or do you lick your own wounds? Paul could see an opportunity everywhere. And he seizes it. Lysias says, sure. I mean, the gracious, gentle, humble, courteous manner that the Apostle Paul has demonstrated to him sort of wins his respect. And Lysias is thinking to himself, if I give this guy the opportunity to speak to these people, maybe I'll be able to get at the bottom of what's going on here. Listening to him and listening to the crowd will help me discern who he is and what he's done. He asked the crowd and he didn't get an answer. And then when he gets him into the barracks, he thinks he knows who he is. He thinks he knows what he's done. But then he sees that theory blown to pieces. So he's thinking to himself, if I let Paul address the people, at least I'll have some idea of what all of this is about. So he gives the apostle the opportunity to preach. Standing there in front of all those people. Listen, thousands of people in the temple. A crowd. And Paul says, can I preach? He didn't say, can I preach? He said, can I address the people? But in Paul's mind, that means preach. I want an opportunity to preach Christ. I want an opportunity to glorify God in the midst of this circumstance. And beaten and bruised and bloody, he waves his hand, and Luke says he began to speak to them in the Hebrew tongue. Why the Hebrew tongue? These are Jews. It's a Jewish temple. They've accused him of anti-Semitism. They've accused him of being against the people. And if Paul had opened his mouth and addressed those people in the Greek language, you know what they would have done? They wouldn't have heard a word he said. It would have proved their suspicion that he was anti-Semite. So he addresses them in their own tongue. And look at chapter 22, verse 2. When they heard the Apostle Paul addressing them in Hebrew, what happened? They got even more quiet. You could have heard a pin drop. Temporarily. Temporarily. And chapter 22 is the Apostle Paul's address to this crowd. And we're going to pick it up and look at that next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You that You are sovereign and providential and in control of even the worst of life's storms. And even though at times we see that things from our perspective are careening out of control, we thank You that You are there in the midst of all of that, that You are still in control, and that You are still accomplishing Your purpose for us. Thank You that no purpose of Yours can be thwarted, and thank You that we rest in Your gracious, loving, and sovereign hand. Thank You, God, for who You are, And thank you for this reminder this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.